0: Now, when I was uh, a bit younger and, you know, the Lord had first called me into min- a ministry, he called me to, um, you know, drop out of school, go to Philadelphia, and, and serve with some local missionaries there for a while. And what often would happen as I was walking the streets, um, you know, going to, and place to you know, the place where I served, um, we would encounter people who would, well, inevitably ask for money. Uh, there's something about us that stuck, you know, stuck out. Or maybe it was just that everyone gets asked for money all the time. Now, we were advised, if not told, that when somebody asked for money, we would not give them money. What we would do is say, well, what do you need? If you're hungry, I'll buy you food. If you're thirsty, I'll buy you a drink. If you ha- need diapers for your child, I will buy you diapers. But I'm not going to give you money. And why is that? Well, because for many of them, addictions were the reason that they were needing money. They were homeless and hopeless because they you know, spent their, their, all their money on heroin or alcohol or th- things of that nature. So as this one gentleman asked me for money and I asked him, well, wh- well, what do you need? And he says, well, very honestly, I need a beer. I said, well, I'm not going to give you money for a beer. He's like, I- I'd really like a beer, please. Uh, and I said, I'll buy you a soda. No, that's not good enough. And we went back and forth or he, you know, trying to coax me into to buying him, you know, one more beer. And I was just like, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to do it, man. And it's just like, you're where you are because of, of this. He says, listen, one beer is not going to make a difference in my life. You know, and at some level he's right. But I asked him, I said, but if every beer was soda, well, where would you be? And at that point, you know, he kind of gave up. I don't know if he realized that I wasn't budging, or or perhaps, you know, there's some semblance of truth that kind of like, you know, the past in him that, you know, he is where he is because of all these decisions that he made along the way. Each beer which seemed innocuous, harmless, yeah, just a nice beer, led him to a place where he was homeless, scrounging for money just to get one more. I don't know how I ended up here. This isn't the person I tried to be. This is not the the man I envisioned me becoming. Now, I've heard addicts, alcoholics say such words many times, but I also know that the more respectable people have thought such words, though seldom uttered aloud. That the veneer of respectability, at least within their own hearts, had been torn or shattered. And they realized, I am not the person I set out to be. I've not lived up to my own standards. And if you're a Christian, much less God's. How did I end up here? And like the man I was on the street, most of the time it was a series of small choices along the way that we were Perhaps oblivious to, until we've, we've woken up from a stupor and say, "I am not at the place where I wanted to be." Now this morning, I am going to do something very different than, uh, I would say, my normal tactic. Um, I was inspired by Stan Key for who, doesn't, who, well, threw the three-point sermon out the window many times. And so we're going to be talking today about, well, six choices that we often make that that lead us into a place where we don't want to be. And we're going to be looking at the, the story of Ahab. If you would, turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 21. And if you were here with us last week as, as Stan Key was, uh, was preaching, and he preached out of the ESV, and if it's good enough for Stan, it's good enough for me, and so if... Uh, at, if you didn't have your Bible, and you're going to need your Bible today, um, there are baskets at the entrance, and they have ESVs at the top I sta- stack there, especially for you, all right? Um, so please take advantage of that, because I did at least three minutes worth of work to do that, and I don't want that to be wasted. So um, we are in 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're taking a look at the, at, at the life of Ahab, and if you remember from last week, Uh, you know, Stan Key mentioned Ahab, and he talked about the need of a a revival, you know, within a country. And he talked about how Ahab, well, he uh, you know he was the manifestation of evil on the throne. Evil in government. And as we turn to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're kind of getting to the end of Ahab's life, well, what we read is is this about Ahab, right? There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, had incited. He acted abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people. Right? What do we learn about, about Ahab? Right? He sold himself to do what was evil. He took this active role to exchange, you know, this part of himself that, that would do what was right to do what was evil. Now, for you 90s kids, you, you may not, you, this may be a foggy memory, but I'm sure that every, all the 90s kids have this memory. As you're watching, you know, your Saturday morning cartoons or after school cartoons or or whatever, there, you know, there was, you know, the the vision of this this man who was running and the voice of a child saying, when I grow up, I want to be a track star. And then the long arm of the law grabs his shoulder, and then the the narrator says, no one ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Don't do drugs, right? Um, And, you know, does that ring a bell, anybody, 90s kids? Come Come on, no, no, you all saw it. All right. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, no one ever says, I want to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord when I grow up. No one ever says, I want to sell myself to do what, what is wicked. No one ever says, I want to become the, this person who epitomizes the, the wickedness and hostility and rebellion to the Lord when I grow up. And yet, as we come to Ahab's life, that's exactly what we find. Somebody, he ended up in a place where he did not want to go. Where I'm guessing he did not want to be. And how did he get there? Well, he he got there like the homeless man asking for money. One decision at a time. One innocuous decision at a time. And so, we're going to flip back and we're going to go through, page through, summarize, say, the story of Ahab. So you can flip back in your Bible um, to 1 Kings chapter 16. And this is what we read about Ahab. We're going to start at the beginning of the story because, well, as Mary Poppins says, that's a very good place to start. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. That in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as this had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. The first decision along his path, the first act that he did to sell himself so completely to do what was evil in the in the sight of the lord well it was in in marrying jezebel right ahab exchanged the word of god for the wisdom of the world he exchanged the word of god for the wisdom of the world right and what the scriptures say what the scriptures you know Outline for the people of God is, you know, in Deuteronomy 7, he says, you shall not intermarry with them, the, the nations around you, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for, for, the, for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, right? The Lord just, you know, called him. He's like, this is not the way that you're supposed to live. You're not supposed to go and, and Marry with the pagans, because why? They're gonna turn your hearts away from, from me. But why would he? Well, why do kings marry pe- you know, the princesses from other countries? To establish peace, prosperity among the people. Sidon you know, stood at the at you know as this port city on the on the western part of the empire, you know, access to the Mediterranean Sea from which you know goods would go out and, and come in. It was a powerful city that you know, represent, you know a, a powerful threat on the western border. And he, he can marry her and, and establish some peace from the west and only has to focus on the enemies to the east and have avenues of, of trade to, to bring in more material prosperity. And it makes all the sense in the world. You can even, you know, if you hear his counselor say, oh, this is a great deal. Just, you know, yeah, marry Jezebel, well, you know, We'll flourish. We'll be safe. We'll be secure. What's the downside? Oh, Yahweh said don't do it. But you know what? Sidonians look like they're doing a little bit better than we are right now. Maybe they know something about the divine realm that we don't know. What's the worst that can happen? So he marries her. And as is often the case, when we exchange the, the word of God for the wisdom of the world, when we make These little decisions, little sins, take them lightly. Well, little sins lead to big sins. And so what do we read? It goes on, 31b. And so he went and he he served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not only does he exchange the w- word of God for the wisdom of the world, well, he does what inevitably happens. He exchanges the true God for lifeless idols that do not save. He, he turns his heart away from the Lord and following the Lord's path to serve Baal and Asherah, building them their own temples, worshiping them. As Stan was mentioning last week when he talked about idolatry, what is that? It's, it's, it's not giving the Lord your whole heart. The Lord is not like the other gods of the nations. Baal's happy for you to worship all the other gods as long as you worship him as well. Yahweh is not. And for Yahweh's people, it's, you know, I am the only God for you. As exclusive, as exclusive as a marriage is between a husband and a, and, a, and a wife, so exclusively is the relationship between Yahweh and his people. But what does he do? Well, he, he begins to worship other gods. And then, hostility begins to emerge. His, his wife, who is far more faithful to her gods than ahab is to his god begins to seek out the prophets of yahweh we read in uh chapter 18 flip over uh verse 3 right what the um as oh you know we we read last week about how you know elijah emerges on the on the scene and he he shuts down the rain from heaven for three and a half years and you know eventually he he's beginning to make a move start this confrontation um, between, you know, the, the prophets of Yahweh and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And he, you know, what we read is in, in verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 3, that Ahab called Obadiah, one of, who was over his household, and Obadiah, he feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties and k's and fed them with bread and water. What do we read here? We hear, we read here that not only is is Ahab looking to um, and his and his regime looking to worship Baal alongside the Lord. They're actively cutting him, cutting off his prophets, cutting off the people of God, the true church that emerges within his borders. What he's he's they're slaughtering them, that they need to be uh, hidden, that they need to be you know. Stuffed in caves and fed with you know bread and water by by you know the one true servant of the Lord left. Right? The church is scattered, the faithful are in hiding or executed under the the regime of Ahab. He exchanged the kindness of God, the kindness of God's leading with rebellion. He exchanged, you know, the kindness of God to reveal to him, to reveal to the nation how to please him, how to serve him. But what does he want? Well, he doesn't want to hear the word of the Lord. He doesn't want to submit to the word of the Lord. And he actively goes out of his way to exterminate those who would proclaim God's word rather than, well, the word of Baal and Asherah. Now skip over to the next chapter, chapter nineteen. After the showdown that you know we read about last week, you know, and you know, Elijah, you know, called with this, you know, well this this big showdown between him and the hundreds of the prophets of Baal and Asher. And they built, you know, these altars and they put, you know, the, the bulls on there. And, you know, the the prophets of Baal and Asher, you know, the, all day they were calling out and cutting themselves and pretending, they were, you know, they were hurt and damaged to get the attention of their God that he would set it on fire. But there's no voice and no answer. And then what does Elijah do? He, you know, builds his own altar and, you know, he puts a bowl down and he has them pour water all over and he prays you know this simple prayer and fire from heaven falls down consumes the whole thing including all the water and what do the people do well looks like revival is about to break out they start shouting yahweh is god yahweh is god and Elijah goes and he prays and that there would be rain. And so in the first time in three and a half years, rain fell down. And it seemed like everybody was, was on board. There's this amazing turnaround in, in God's people. And they're, you know, the nation's coming back. And it wouldn't surprise us at all if Ahab was among the people saying, Yahweh is God. He's proven himself. He's demonstrated his power. He shows that he is true God and Baal is not. So Ahab rides back, and what we read in chapter 19, verse 1: So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and he killed the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. That's a that the demonstration that God gave on that hill, demonstrating his power, demonstrating his sovereignty, demonstrating that he is the true God. Yet ultimately it falls on deaf ears. That Ahab exchanged the fresh revelation of God for old patterns. That God revealed himself so clearly, and yet when he goes back and he tells his wife, well, they just fall right back into the same patterns that they've lived, the hostility to the Lord, the hostility to the Lord's word over their life. Revival didn't happen that day. And you might think, and I wouldn't blame you, that if, such, if, if you were God and you were in God's shoes, you know, at that moment, well, what would we do? Zep, right? I mean, that kind of rebellion, that kind of evil, that kind of hard-heartedness as he demonstrates all that he is to his people and yet it was still profoundly rejected and they still seek to take the lives of his prophets, of his people. But then we get into the next chapter, chapter 20. Flip with me one more time. That's not what we see. What we see is now Israel is under threat, under attack by the Arameans, or your Bibles may say the Syrians. Ben Hadad, their, their king, is, is coming in. He, you know, initially, he comes and basically says, Hey, uh, you're going to be my servant. And they're like, uh, Fine. You're big, you're powerful, you're stronger than we are. Fine. And then he says, actually, you know what, I'm going to come in and take all your stuff and your wives and your children and, and you're going to be okay with it. And you're like, I don't think we're going to be okay with that. Um, and you might think that if you were God, you're like, well, this is the perfect time to, to show him, well, what's happening, right? You've rejected me. I'm giving you over to, to the Arameans. Ben-Hadad's going to have his way with you, destroy you, wipe you off the face of the earth. But that's not what happens. The word of the Lord comes to Ahab. With a, well, with kindness. He says, You're gonna be victorious. You're gonna you're gonna win against this this army that's bigger and stronger and, and better than yours. And he goes out and he fights and he wins. And then another thing happens. He says, Well, he's gonna come back again next year. So get ready. But you're gonna win then too. And he does. And he proves once again. But what ends up happening is, you know, he has their, their king cornered. And the king says, well, can you uh, let me live, please? He's preserved my life. And, and so Ahab says, sure, you're my brother. This king, who wanted to come in and annihilate and, you know, take all that they had, destroy them, take their women, take their children, make them slaves to them. And he says, well, hey, listen, it's just, it's just business. We're cool, right? And Ahab like, yeah, he does. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Just give us back a couple of the cities you took. But then the word of the prophet came to Ahab one more time. Verse 20, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. That Ahab exchanged the victory of God for defeat. That God had given his enemy, the enemy of his people, the one who wanted to ravage them, destroy them, annihilate them. And he exchanged the the goodness of God, of victory for defeat. Unwilling to do what God had called him to do. And it's, I wouldn't call it irony as much as divine justice and providence that ultimately be the same country that would take his own life. Right? He underestimated the threat. He underestimated these people who wanted to, to kill and destroy them and thinking that they may be useful. Perhaps he sees that the Assyrians are... are Gaining power in the east. And he says, well, you know, if we can just, we can have an alliance with these, these Syrians, then, you know, that will help stave them off. But it's against the will of the Lord. He exchanged the victory that God had given him for defeat. He thought that his enemy could be tamed, could be useful, rather than destroyed. And lastly, we come to chapter 21. And we see even the, the depths to which he has fallen as, you know, in chapter 21, he's, well, he has a summer home and he, he really likes a piece of, piece of land. It's right next to it. He's like, I'd like a garden here. So he goes up to this man called Naboth and he says, hey, listen, uh, can, I, can I buy your land? And Naboth says, no, that's, this, is my, this is my family's land. We don't give this up so he starts sulking and moping around. And his wife Jezebel is like, listen, be a king. Don't be weak. She, she hatches a plan on his behalf. So what we read in, in chapter 21 is she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. This is uh, verse 8. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters... Proclaim a fast. Set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite of him. Let them bring this charge against him saying, hey, you've cursed God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. Jezebel, with his full blessing, decides, you know what? This isn't how kings act. When kings want something, what do they do? Well, kings take something. You want the vineyard, we'll make it happen. All we have to do is hire, you know, some scoundrels to say he this Naboth character did something evil. We'll kill him. We can take his land. And that's exactly what they did. And what we see is once again, Ahab and his choice, he exchanged the forms of godliness for a means of his own self indulgence. So it's so like almost ironic or twisted. What is it? They proclaim a fast. They proclaim a, a, a time where they're going to come and try to empty themselves, to give themselves up, to, to withhold from themselves you know, all indulgence in order to, to set their minds and to, to please the Lord. This outward appearance of, of godliness, but it only served as a, a veneer in order to set up circumstances where he could murder somebody to take his land. That's so why as we come to, to the end of chapter 21, as the, as the prophet comes and confronts him, we, we see the full realization of these decisions that Ahab has made along the way, right? There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. There's none who sold himself that much, right? He exchanged The word of God for the wisdom of the world. He exchanged the the God of life for lifeless idols. He exchanged the kindness of God's leading with rebellion. He exchanged the revelation, the fresh revelation of God for old patterns. He exchanged the victory of God for defeat. He exchanged the form of godliness for self-indulgence. There was none, there was none who did as much to sell himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, Elijah confronts him one more time. Chapter 21, verse 20. So, uh, Elijah confronts him. He says, Ahab said to him, Well, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I found you. Because you sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'm going to bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut, you, cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Naboth. I'll make and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin and of Jezebel, the Lord said, the dogs will eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens will eat. And if you are a Hebrew child right now, I think you would be like, if this is the first time you would start like applauding and cheering, like, yes, justice is done. The wicked is going to get what he deserves. You know, I don't know if you, about you, but like when you watch the, the movies and you, there's that moment towards the end in some of them where like the realization that the evil person is is being destroyed, you know, how sweet that is. It's just like, you know, the person who did all these schemes in order to make, you know, $100 million, but the hero reveals how all this has just fallen through. He's foiled his plans, and not only is he losing out on this deal, but all his personal wealth he's accumulated to that point is also going to be taken away. Right? Like those are sweet moments. Right? It's just like, it's like, it's better than just like the person, you know, dying, just getting to watch them realize, well, all that you were working for is just coming upon your head. You're losing everything. You thought that you had this awesome plan. You thought you had this awesome scheme, but you are actually going to to get exactly what you deserve. And man, that is a sweet, sweet moment. And this is what was happening to, to Ahab for all his selling himself to do what was evil. And then Elijah comes in and is like, this is your fate. You will die. And your whole dynasty is going to get cut off. No one's going to survive. And not only that, is it all who are associated with you, they're not going to be buried. They're not going to be honored. They're going to be left to the open field to be consumed by scavengers of dogs and birds. And this culture, that's a pretty big deal. If you weren't, you know, to not be buried was it a great insult. Right? We we see this in, in in Samuel where the, you know, the one of the, the daughters of Saul, you know, stands for days we, you know, trying to get the, the birds and dogs from, from eating um, the sons of Saul as they were laying in the open field. You don't let that happen to your people. You don't let that happen to your family. And so when Elijah pronounces this judgment, it is the judgment of, of complete and utter shame over, over Ahab. It's actually, I read a, a story of, of this particular passage being the reason why this, this Indian doctor ended up becoming a Christian. He had been a, a A Marxist longing for for justice, but he realized as he uh, you know was following in the in well these Marxist tribes that that is all about just grabbing power and property for yourself. That they weren't concerned with justice; they were concerned with accumulating for themselves. And he came and he he read the story of of Naboth's vineyard and God's judgment on him. He's like, wow! I can't believe there's a God like that, one who's going to exercise judgment on on the wicked. One who stands up for the the little guy. And he gives himself, he gave himself to, to the Lord. But at the same time, as much as it could be, this is not a sermon on God's judgment of sin. This is not a message about how bad Ahab was and how we can just, well, we can thank God that that he took him out. Because when we keep reading chapter 21, verse 27, so Ahab heard these words. He tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted. And he lay in the sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite one more time, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I'm not going to bring this disaster in his days. But in his Sundays, I'll bring disaster upon his house. What? The guy who's murdered your prophets who sent the, the, the prophets into exile, the church is hiding, who, you know, slaughtered, who steadfastly sold himself to do what was evil, who stuck up his middle finger at, at the Lord again and again and again. And yet, what? He tells that he's going to die. He puts on some, some rough clothes and sits about for a little bit, and you're just going to let him off? You're going to let him end his days in peace? Yeah. Yeah, he is. It's kind of almost frustrating, isn't it? Like, why? Why would you show him this mercy? Why would you allow him to to go to the grave largely in peace? Not seeing the, the ravages of his sin. Not seeing his whole family destituted and desecrated by the oncoming enemy. Why do you let that happen? Well, he humbled himself. That the word of God finally penetrated just a little bit into his heart. This man who sold himself again and again and again to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet when he finally, finally even showed the inkling of humbling himself before the Lord, what does he receive? He receives mercy. He receives mercy. And that mercy, which is in some ways troubling and frustrating and exhausting, yet that same mercy that is our assurance as His people. And when as I stand back and I look at the life of Ahab, I realize, as wicked as Ahab was, his difference from me is is not is in degree and not in a difference of kind. That there's an Ahab in me. I, I'd say a little Ahab, but sometimes he's a little bit bigger than I think. One who exchanged his the word of God for the wisdom of this world. This little Ahab we see, well, manifest himself in in the life of God's people quite often how often do we, you know, hearing the words of Jesus about, you know, to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, that the, the poor, the the good life is is given to the poor. That it's the fool who who tears down his barn the big, bigger ones in the store more and more. And yet when we look for financial advice, we don't go to Jesus. We go to the financial gurus who've you know packed away millions. That yes, he exchanged the life for the, of the true God, the true and living God for idols. And yet, well, you know, as Stan was you know, proclaimed many times this week, that we give our hearts away again and again as well. That we look, we give our souls to money and sex and power and prestige. Forsaking the way of Jesus. Forsaking the way of the cross for the way of the world. And yes, that is idolatry. And I've seen it in families again and again and again. Where the things of this world take priority over the things of God. That when the soccer coach says, this has been rescheduled, everything turns on a dime in order to to fit the coach's desires. Or the employer's desires. Or the school project that came up. And I'm not saying people have to go to to church every time the door is open, but as families so often do, prioritize all the things of the world over the things of God. It reveals what they really, truly value. It is idolatry. Yes, Ahab exchanged the kindness of God's leading. The word of God proclaimed to him for rebellion. And how often, how quickly the church fails to 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 take uh, well to take the word of God for what it's worth. I know a man who is addicted to to, to marijuana and but he you know he he wants everyone to give him his blessing. He wants to, you know, and you know, confronted by his family who said, listen, you, you need to give up this stuff. It's not right. It's harming the people around you. It's harming your own, your own health. You need just to give it up. And, you know, and this man who proclaims to be a Christian, and they say, listen, I don't think this is what God's will for you is. And so what does he do? Well, he does what we all do. Rather than searching the scriptures to which, you know, they can, he can conform, he searches Google for what can be confirmed. And so I think he Googled something like, well, why can Christians smoke marijuana as much as they want? And then sent it to all his family members and say, hey, see, listen, there's an article online. How could it be wrong? The article is basically, well, you know, it says in the Bible that God created, you know, all plants that are good to eat. So obviously it's okay. I don't know whether he applied the same logic to Hemlock. But... It didn't necessarily seem like the, the best argument to me. But how often do we, you know, we, we can go wherever we want to have somebody who seems spiritual confirm what we really want to be true about the Bible and about the God of the Bible. is one Google search away. But we become like Ahab. He, yes, he exchanged the revelation of God for old patterns. He exchanged the victory of God for defeat. How quickly and how often have we been met by God, swore to ourselves, swore to him, perhaps swore to those around us, we're going to be different. We're going to change. I'm not going to be the person who I was before this. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to listen to my wife better. I'm not going to yell at the kids. I'm going to get my family back to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. I'm not going to look at porn ever again. I'm going to clean up my language. And then a day or two or a couple weeks go by and we realize that the, the victory, the conviction of sin that we had gained is now lost. We've fallen back into old patterns. Rather than put to death the sin that God has revealed, we let it live thinking it might be useful. And we find that It's no longer under our thumb. But we're under it once again. Like the alcoholic who swears to never have another drink but goes back to the bar with his friends just to hang out and wonders why he keeps relapsing. We return like the dog to its vomit. And yes, he exchanged the forms of godliness as a means of self-indulgence. But we We would never do something like that. We would never use spiritual practices to, to boast of our own goodness, to feed our flesh, to reveal to the world just how great and grand we are. So this is why the, the mercy of God, which is so troubling, that lets people like Ahab off the hook because they they humble themselves for a moment, why it assures us so deeply because the difference between us and him is not necessarily the difference of, you know, he's just a different kind altogether. No, 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 no. It's a difference of degree. And the God who shows mercy on this Ahab shows mercy on us too. As we read in the beginning, as Colton recited, that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. That the Ahab that lives within us, that as, we, as the word of God hits our hearts, as we hear his, his accusing word and we, we turn and we say, yes, you are right, God, and I am in the wrong. You're accusing finger that's at me. That is right. That is what I deserve. Well, that's the beginning stages of receiving the mercy of God. What does Jesus say? Those spiritually destitute, you're blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You who are mourning over your sin, you are blessed because you are going to be comforted you who are famished and dehydrated longing for righteousness you're going to be satisfied that as as the lord does a mercy in our lives and you know those who who may have come in here broken heavy-hearted disgusted with themselves realizing that well you have made all these decisions and that you are not the person that you thought you were ever going to be that one beer at a time, you slip down a slippery slope to a place where you swore that you would never amount to. That's the mercy of God that unveils that our necessity for his grace. When God reveals that, it, it, you know, if you are going to be saved, it can be anything but his grace alone. Well, that's the first step to receiving the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. Isn't it a good thing that God's not like us? Isn't it good that his, his mercy astounds us, troubles us, frustrates us, that he gives mercy to someone like Ahab? Because that, that same God gives mercy to us. And so we, we can look to the work of God in our life. The God who's so adamant about reconciling sinners as bad as Ahab to himself to send his own son to live what we could not do. That we could not conform ourselves to, to what God was. So God sent his son to become like us, that we could become his children. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the scriptures. That's the mercy of God extended to His people. So praise God, will we? Jeff, uh, you and the worship team can come up. Uh, kind Father, we, uh, I ask as, uh, I ask that your Spirit would would communicate the full, your full intent here to our hearts. The depths of your mercy that seems unfathomable that you would communicate to us in a way that well, we know that it is true. That we would not deny it and deny how you have revealed yourself to us. Make known to us, we pray, the greatness of your mercy, the vastness of your grace, the power of your love for your people, and the glory that you receive to take people like us, wretched, lowly, half-hearted, but to show us mercy regardless. We pray this in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.